Okay, hi, welcome to the Unfiltered Psych Talk series. I'm Dr. Sunita from the Holistic Psychotherapy Center. And I'm here with my colleagues um, here, Dr. Priya, Honey, Shreya, Shirley, and Andrew. All right, so all of us here are a team of psychotherapists and counselors, and we really believe in talking about mental health without any filters. So what you will be experiencing with us is we'll talk a little bit about research, a little bit on tips, and also our own challenges and emotions as we journey with our clients and, of course, our own journey also. So today, we are going to focus um, to talk about suicide, right? So during the um, COVID period, you might have read in the Straits Times that um, there is a rise in the number of cases of suicides. And if you look at the, um, the numbers itself, there is about 452 suicides uh, last year. And this figure has been the highest since 2012, right? And um, SOS also has commented that there is 13% increase um, since 2019. So what you're noticing is a rise in the number of suicides, right? And um, in fact, SOS had commented that uh, besides this rise, they also noticed that in the last uh, five years, suicide has been on an increasing trend. So this is one of the reasons why we want to talk about suicide today. And we also noticed that the um, suicide cases is across all age groups. It's not like only the young or the elderly, although these two groups um, have higher numbers, right? And the other thing we noticed was just to put into perspective, right? Suicide is about 2% of the total deaths in Singapore. And um, if you compare that against um, accidents, for example, which is about 89 or 90. And um, this is definitely a worrying trend where we are losing people to suicide a lot more than a traffic accident, for example. And the World Population Review has mentioned that in Singapore, it's 11.2 um, rate for every 100,000 people that, um, that are around. So if, if you look at it, 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 those numbers itself, it's actually, what we are noticing is that um, people have been turning to suicide as a way of coping, especially when they're facing very challenging situations. And um, when we look at age group, we notice that those between the age of 10 to 29 tend to have the, um, one of the higher rates of suicide. And males tend to account more for suicide as compared to female. And these are some things we want to talk about, like how come males are committing suicide more than female, right? And we also know that for every um, uh, person who has committed suicide, there is about, I don't remember the numbers offhand, but I think it's six or seven survivors who have attempted suicide. So these are definitely worrying trends for us. And this is why we want to talk about suicide very openly today. So um, with the whole team here, we are going to be really talking about things that is... Uh, questions that we have experienced ourselves in our work and also um, when we are like searching through media and all of that. So there will really be no filter. Um, we're going to go straight into it. So um, the intention here is not to provide therapy, but it's more for educational purposes, right? At the end of this whole session, we will talk about um, helplines that you could turn to. Um, and of course, you can contact any one of us here also. So if the team is ready, I'm going to start with the first question. And the question is that, um, why do you think people commit suicide? Um, 
in my recent experience what i have noticed is that there could be many many reasons for why people attempt and commit suicide and sometimes there could just be reasons that are forever unseen and unknown um an overarching thing that i have often noticed is really it is a cry for help and at some point for various reasons they may be going through various circumstances in life it could be a loss of a loved one it could be grieving a loss of a loved one i mean through covid we've obviously seen all of that uh, isolation has been one sometimes just like job loss uh, just sheer hopelessness academic failures uh, but at the end of it it is almost like it is just so too overwhelming for them to handle whatever that situation is and it is really in some sense i mean it may not be that they really want to commit suicide but they're just like so overwhelmed and so helpless and this is like their last call for or like last cry for help like help me literally like help me um so when i'm dealing with my clients sometimes it's very important to understand what is that unmet need it could be reasonable it could be unreasonable that's something that we can tackle later but really it is an unmet need uh which uh, is something uh, quite telling for all of us as human beings that another human being is feeling so vulnerable and so helpless that amongst all of us he or she is finding himself so alone that nobody is listening nobody is helping and i think that need kind of uh, you know needs to be addressed uh, and so one thing that i do want to uh, really sound out is uh, even on during those times when you really really feel alone uh, there is help it may not occur to people around you it may not come from uh, the loved ones perhaps you know that's the wrong door that you are knocking or maybe they are not capable at that point in helping you but does not mean that help is not available but of course there are i mean uh, you know if you look at a textbook answer in terms of why people commit suicide that that could range from mental illnesses to trauma to abuse to uh, as i said academic failure job loss sometimes even chronic diseases just the burden of uh, carrying chronic pain and chronic disease and feeling like a burden on somebody else uh, that could uh, propel people to thinking about uh, suicide but really i think it's a cry for him it is a cry for him. thank you priya shreya you want to share yeah so i also wanted to add uh, of course uh, there are many reasons uh, starting with relationships financial burden stress at work prolonged depression and in my recent uh, work with my clients i've observed uh, relationships has been one of uh, like a major cause and uh, it really stands out for me how um, you know sometimes we all have uh you know we all are sensitive to others needs and i have observed that some of my clients uh cannot really deal with for example a breakup or a divorce so uh i mean uh it's very very devastating for them and that is something which has really stood out in 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 the work i have done with my clients and uh really uh, not knowing where to go next you know so it's like a Uh, like they really don't know what are the other coping mechanisms and what do i do after that so it's like the world has ended because uh, for example if i talk about relationships uh, you know the person feels that uh, you know this this was the person whom i loved and now i don't have anyone so what next 
so i think that is uh, where i think uh, you know and then the the negative thoughts of course drive them uh, continuously in that and uh, yes definitely um, then our work starts and then definitely you know how to really uh, make them know there are different coping mechanisms and how the uh, you know how to distance themselves from the negative thoughts is something which i do with them okay uh, thank you shreya thank you priya um so so just to summarize right what i hear from both of you is that the reasons can be very varied and very broad um from academic to home situation to relationships it's, it's really broad right and the other thing i was hearing was the word overwhelming keeps coming up right that is very overwhelming and um if we look at it from the angle of 2h then it's really the feeling of that this is hopeless and no one can help me so it's also a helplessness that's happening so as you're saying this um uh, the other thing that came to my mind is what people usually say when someone commits suicide right um the things i've heard over over my lifespan so far is uh, the person is attention seeking um they're selfish not thinking about their family um parents and things or they're being very impulsive right so just wondering uh did these are statements that are made by people around us and sometimes by uh family members of those who have uh, passed on so just wondering um what are your thoughts about this where people say that they're impulsive attention seeking or selfish for example i think one of the difficulties uh in understanding suicide and the reasons for why people uh turn to to that as a solution to their problems is is you know essentially what priya and shreya just shared as well is how do we understand what is a very unique perspective and and the context of an individual going through something so incredibly hard and terrible that the average person without that context may feel that those things are the case right that someone is being selfish and that of course the pain left on the people uh you know whether it be family or friends will feel a sense of that for sure but i think our job as as counselors is is being able to try and understand that very unique context that that person is coming from so in younger people for example if it's trying to put yourself in the shoes of someone going through you know o levels the stress of exams um maybe someone that's additionally being bullied or has been bullied for several years and in addition is is also receiving abuse from from family at home perhaps these are you know compounded enough of a reason to make someone feel like there is nothing better beyond right there is nothing better in life and i think particularly at least i see this a lot in in younger people now in in singapore so i i think it's easy for people to say that it's a selfish act um and that you know i guess impulsiveness is is maybe something we will speak about a little bit more uh due to media and the sort of sensationalization of of suicide as well um but i think without understanding the true context uh, of the individual it's it's impossible to say um but obviously everything when it comes to mental health um and well-being is is in a sense selfish as well so people are entitled to that too thank you andrew um, for for sharing that yes and please and i agree with andrew right so you know like without knowing what's actually going on for that person 
it can it, it can be so impossible to fully understand uh, why that person decide to hurt themselves or to attempt suicide and so when when they are experiencing uh, so much despair and so much hopelessness that what we uh, like you mentioned earlier on uh, they don't know what to do and that could be the only solution that they they know and it's like a way to to end their misery and for the family or for close friends for those who lose or to have someone suicidal the heartache the fear can be can be very overwhelming and because they can't deal with this worry this heartache this fear of losing this person and this may lead to feelings of anger or frustration and these feelings itself can i i think lead some people to believe that suicide is a selfish thing to do because they're not thinking about me you know they're just doing it for themselves but what about me so it's more of like how they are coping it uh, themselves because the people who are involved in their lives they they need help themselves because they may not know how to deal with uh, their spouse or their child or their best friend uh, who is going through this uh, suicidal thoughts so and 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 that's when the anger or the frustration and then the you know the all the words of you being selfish and you know trying to get attention and all started to surface. Thank, thank you, Hernie. And um, uh, I realized that both Andrew and yourself talked not only about the, the person who has committed suicide, but also the, the people who are left behind with the family, right? So, so thanks for bringing the, the other angle of that. Yes, Priya, please share. Um, just adding on to what Andrew and Hernie shared, um, oftentimes we think suicide is impulsive. Um, but you know, if if you if we were to think about it as a species, we have a very strong survival instinct. So for somebody to go against that instinct, that means something really, really powerful or something really overwhelming has happened. So it kind of requires, I would say, for the lack of a better word, but some sense of that fearlessness. It's not easy. It doesn't come as as easy like oh i had a thought and you know i i went ahead and i did this act it, it is not easy for anyone to do that and i feel some it is a myth that we think that you know people don't consider uh their loved ones who are left behind they do in fact a lot of times they withhold what they are feeling or uh they keep that suppressed only because of you know what people around them may feel or say or, you know, in whatever circumstances there are, sometimes even approaching a counselor, the family may feel like a lot of stigma and therefore the person does not reach out for help. So they are considering all those factors. But we have to understand that for someone to kind of go beyond that survival instinct means that he or she is in dire need. It is that it is that overpowering for that individual that right now it's almost like every door is shut. And no matter where I go, I am not getting what I need. And I'm, I'm not even saying what I want, I'm saying what I need. It is becoming a need at that point in time. So I hesitate to call anybody who is contemplating that, that it is impulsive. They've probably thought through this many, many times before they've actually gone through it. So imagine that person 
replaying this going through this so many times it can be quite quite devastating just to go through that process again and again and so uh, you know a depression or isolation or uh, just this uh, loneliness i think is one of the biggest causes of suicide as we know a lot of folks at some point have become so um, like they feel that they are so alone that they feel that nobody is really it, it's not going to make any difference to anyone whether i live or i survive so it's not coming from a space of selfishness as much as like nobody cares even if i disappeared from here nobody cares so it's important that we kind of you know sit in that person's shoes and think versus you know calling it a selfish act or an impulsive act i also feel a fo folks who if you know who at one point do commit suicide they probably have left some telltale signs which we failed to pick up or which people around them failed to pick up so uh, i don't think it, in that sense it is a selfish act or an impulsive act in fact sometimes people think that no let me unburden the people around me i don't want to burden them anymore with my you know mental issues or my depression so let me just you know get out of their way so hesitate to call it really a selfish or an impulsive act I, I think really what they need is a little bit more kindness a little bit more hearing a little bit more listening to not that we have to give in to their needs but just a little bit more listening to actually for my opinion for that yeah. right i think some of the people commit suicide because they think they they, they rather don't have them with the family members that's a better off without me it's a kind of the thoughts actually sacrifice themselves for the better of the others, especially for the elderly. They are sick. They think I'm the burden. So I, I'd rather kill myself so that I reduce the, 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 the pain for myself and also reduce the pain for my family. So these kind of thoughts, I think it's not selfish at all. It's actually for the better. Thank you, um, Shani and Priya, for bringing those angles, right? That... Um... But the reality is all these labels are never helpful. And in fact, we cause families who have lost their loved ones more pain. So sometimes when we, when we don't know what to say, perhaps it's even better not to say something. right? Because when we say things like, uh, oh, your child is selfish or they didn't think about you, how come they... Uh, these things are definitely not providing any comfort. And at the same time, it causes a lot more pain. And... Um, so thanks for bringing those angles also that sometimes people uh, commit suicide is really because they care for the people around them and they sincerely think that the world is a better place without them. Although we know it's not a reality, right? But at that moment, that is what's going through their mind. And also the reality of what uh, uh, Priya was also mentioning earlier that they have tried again and again and again and again to survive. Right? And they have entertained these thoughts of suicide again and again and again and again before it ever happens. So um, I guess the idea of compassion and kindness is really important. Right? That um, we really are not walking in anyone's shoes. It's best not to comment because we don't know. Just like each one of us will not know the other person's story in detail. So the, the idea of kindness really is, is so important here, especially when, when we are talking to someone who has lost a loved one. So in, in, in um, earlier I mentioned about men um, usually tend to commit suicide more than women or rather complete suicide more than women, although we know that women attempt more suicide. Now, who are the other people who are at a higher risk of committing suicide? 
just so that you know people who are listening in can have some idea not that we are profiling people but there's some idea of that possibility that um, there's a group of people who are slightly higher risk and who, who would that be in terms of male and a female the male usually is uh, more tend to commit suicide kill themselves especially in the Chinese society. I don't know in the Western society, Andrew, maybe you can comment further. In the Chinese society, they say men should uh, uh, shed the blood, uh, should, can bleed, but cannot shed the tears. Uh, it, should be, it should be like a stone of the family, never cry, you know? So if you cry, you are just like, you are not brotherhood, you are like a scissors. So this kind of labor and these kind of words make the men to tend to be suppressed their feeling. They don't allow to, to express their feeling openly or even they not allowed to cry. So when they are got the things tougher in their life, what do they can do? They can suffer in the pain. They continue suffering, suffering, suffering until one day suffering no longer it's so painful. They do the self-harm. They do the substance abuse. They do alcohol, drugs. But all these cannot end in their psychological pain. What do they do? The only escape for them is to kill themselves. So killing for them, for the men, is actually due to the long-term uh, effect of suppress of the feeling. And the societal actually is for them to cry. is a taboo. You should not cry at all. That is the... Uh, one of the reasons uh, cause men's suicidal rate is higher. Yeah. Yeah. And taking from Shirley's point, uh, I attended a suicide prevention training and this point actually uh, was brought out about why actually men don't uh, come for help or why men commit suicide more than women. And I think uh, there were two interesting revelations uh, from there which really stood out was uh, one was the mindset uh, and the beliefs. So uh, when I say mindset, it can be, uh, you know, sometimes uh, while uh, in during childhood or in their upbringing, men sup uh, supposedly, you know, uh, they believe that they are more stronger or if they talk about their feelings openly, then uh, it's like it will not show them as a strong person. So I think, uh, yeah, these two were very important pointers that came out, which was, uh, you know, uh, what is they, what is that they believe and what their mindset is. So I think men are generally more vulnerable as a group. And uh, in Singapore, elderly above 60 was, uh, uh, you know, the most, uh, uh, the vulnerable group uh, who committed suicide. So yeah, that is uh, the numbers here. So, Andrew, yes, do, you, do you have any idea in your, because you are come from London, right? If I'm not remember. Andrew, yeah. I come from Oxford, but yeah, I'm from the UK. But I've been oh, in Singapore UK. for so 10 years. So how's the culture there for the, for the mayor? Are they like Chinese culture saying, oh, you should not cry at all? So this is a curious question for you. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I can only characterize um, an opinion based on on my experience of the UK 10 years ago right so I've, I've lived here for a very long time now but I think the feeling is probably universal to men wherever you are um, actually and I think it does persist in the UK um, and I think that you know anyone who probably counsels uh, expats here will probably feel the same that 
there's probably a, a fairly tremendous burden on, on the male as well because of the financial success that is also required of individuals to, um, you know, prop up the family. Not to say that females obviously aren't doing that more in Singapore now as well, but traditionally in the West, I think as well, it's been very normal that the, the male has to, to bear that burden. And I think in a very competitive society, particularly here in Singapore with, you know, some of the bigger corporations, investment or banking, the stresses of being in such a competitive financial or professional environment rather can be incredibly challenging in addition to having to look after the family. So I think those things are definitely present um, in, in that side, you know, the sort of man of the house. But um, as you said, and, and as others have said, I think there is less of a, people are less inclined to share their emotions um, now as, as men. But I would have to say that um, the positive news, I think, is that it is somewhat of a generational thing that typically, you know, it is among older men, particularly people maybe above their 40s now that do feel that way. And in some of the work that I do with youth, the, uh, the willingness to share uh, between men and women is, is, is much more equal now. And, uh, you know, I speak to and, and meet with a lot of uh, individuals who, who are willing to share as, as males. Um, and a lot of this can come from things like gender dysphoria, for example, but more, more often than not, the access to online resources, uh, resources which are anonymous, allow people that, that place to have a voice, uh, which is great news. Thank you, Andrew. Um, now, just wondering, so we've talked about uh, men, we just spoke about uh, elderly. Is there any other group that's more vulnerable that we should keep a lookout for? somewhere that suicide is the second leading cause of death among uh, the youngsters, in particular between, I think, 15, 16 years old to 30 or 29 years old. And this uh, I was printed, uh, I read it uh, is globally. So uh, it is a worrying trend at the moment to, to see that uh, the youth is um, the, the suicide rate for youth is increasing. Thanks, Annie, for bringing that up because I think it, in Singapore, I think it was published in the Straits Times, if I'm not mistaken, that is 10 to 29 years old. And mm -hmm. um, while we used to think that it's the elderly and uh, people who are like, you know, career crisis and all that who, who might commit suicide, uh, the age has become as young as 10. Um, which, which I think is a very worrying trend right now. If, uh, if very young, uh, also turning to to um, suicide as a solution to their life challenges. So, just wondering from there, right? That um, uh, what what can be done to prevent maybe young people? Right, just because we have limited time, I'm gonna just focus on the young people. What can we do to to prevent young people from turning towards suicide? From, from parents, I mean, like in the household, parents, teachers, and um, I think learning the warning signs of teen suicide or suicide can actually prevent an attempt. Um, and to, and when, when these warning signs have been identified, and that's when, you know, when they can keep an open communication with the teenager, the youth, and that will, that will allow them uh, to have this belief or understanding that 
we care and they care rather than rather than uh, being being alone because again youth this time they have a lot of changes uh, in education in the way it, body changes friends and things like that and they may not know how to uh, deal with that so a lot of this a lot of this pressure a lot of this stress sometimes they you know like again um we've heard this a lot you know we have to you know about the new norm you know we have to accept the new norm we have to because of covid as well and but for them it, it's really hard uh, for them to just accept and to just bear with all these uh, changes because they don't know how to adapt and how do they process and how do they um, identify their emotions and the teen years are filled with major changes right so the strong feelings combination of confusion fear and doubt may affect the way they problem solve the way they uh, make decisions so again in singapore it is important for them to succeed i mean as much as we understand mental well-being is important but again nothing really changed because they still have to ace that uh, test they still have to sit for exams so all this stress and all these changes can make our youth become more stressful and this pressure is not uh, being met so i think knowing and seeing and understanding um, the the warning signs may help them thank you honey for bringing that up right so i'm just naturally going to go into that so what are some of the um, warning signs that friends teachers parents siblings can look out for what would be some of these warning signs actually when the kids try to some needs of their internal needs haven't been met. So their behavior will be changed. For example, they are not going to school. They start not doing the homework. They keep on complaining, saying, I don't like the food. I, I, I hate, the, hate your fighting at home. And uh, all these are the warning signs of behavior changes. And the underlying, there are some needs they need to convey to the parents, to the teachers, to the peers, but they don't know how to convey the words properly. Then they use action, they use act out. So these are the warning signs we can look after. So actually one of my client, they are in the, ah, this is a, they are in the marriage uh, divorce stage. So they are fighting every day. So my client to see me, come to see me say, okay, my kids told me uh, the son is primary five at the time, say, I'm not happy. I want to kill myself. So she literally asked me, is that my kids are trying to seek my attention? And recently, she, he also don't do the homework. He escaped from the school. The teacher complained almost every week to her. And she needs to work. So she feels frustrated. Why my kids don't understand the situation? And it also threatened me, saying, he's not happy, I'm going to kill himself. So after 10 sessions, he started to realize, actually, the kids feel insecure. During the divorce proceeding or the conflict or marital 
the process, the kids see the home like a battlefield because they keep on fighting. And the kids feel losing and the, the family or father or mother. And the intention, subconsciously, he don't want the parents' divorce. He wants to ending the, the situation. That's why he keep on telling the mother, I'm not happy, I'm not happy. But the mother never take it seriously because the mother is so overwhelming with his, her own situation. Eventually, the kids send the, one day send a message to the mother, say, mom, I'm gone. Then the mother is highlight, it's so, so frightened. And I say, what happened? Where are you? Eventually, she managed to find him and open these cases with me, say, oh, my kids got an issue. So deeper down the counseling issue, we find out actually the kids lack of security, the kids lack the lack of being loved because the parents are vital. So she, he don't feel it's being loved at all. After the few sessions of counseling make her realize, oh, the kids need to be secure. The kids need to be loved and need to be encouraged. The, 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 there's no longer the issue the kids say, I'm not happy or I'm not, uh, uh, I want to kill myself. The kids no longer mention that. So when the kids in the situation feel, uh, in the situation feel underlying needs, love needs, belonging needs, all these uh, uh, survival needs not being met, then they use a behavior to show it up. To um, what Shirley said, uh, when you asked earlier on, uh, Sunita, about the warning signs, um, the warning signs that my clients' parents have shared with me, uh, it's when their child uh, suddenly um, lose interest in something that they love. Let's take, for example, if they love to run, they just don't want to run anymore. And also, one of the common uh, warning signs that I've heard from them uh, is the sleeping pattern. Some of them will sleep too little, they can't sleep, or some will sleep for a very long time. And changes in weight and also the appetite. So um, again, like declining school performances as well. So these uh, were the common warning signs that I have uh, heard from my clients' parents. So these are the these are the warning signs that perhaps uh, we can also look uh, for or we can observe from our child. Yeah, I think to add to uh, one of them is also, uh, you know, if the child isolates himself or herself suddenly and doesn't talk to anyone. So usually uh, like children do share things with their parents or friends. But sometimes uh, they could just like, you know, isolate themselves or be in their room for a very long time. And usually like you see the, the changes in their behavior in terms of not sharing anything. They are just in their own world. So I think that is also one of uh, one of the things that uh, can be checked. Um, I think it's also important to listen, like really listen deeply. Um, sometimes they do drop phrases like, I wish I didn't, I wish I wasn't here, or um, I wish I could just kill myself or just, you know, be out of this space. And what would the world be like if I'm not here? And they may say it in a very, um, like, you know, almost like slipping it through, but I think it's important 
to be at least aware of those phrases, not like brush away from them. If you, if you, if you hear something like that, take the time to kind of connect with your child. It may be nothing, but it also helps to kind of connect and just listen at that point. It's not about like, oh, you know, there is a problem and I'm going to fix it. Sometimes they just want to be heard. So it's important to kind of just watch out for some of these phrases that they may drop by, like, you know, there's no point in living anymore. It's all empty. Nobody likes me. You know, it, it could be just, uh, it, we're talking about young, young folks, right? Teenagers, they all have peer issues or sometimes feeling that I was excluded in a group, sometimes excluded even on social media and, you know, stuff like that. But noticing these changes, noticing their, as Hani and Shirley, Shreya mentioned, mood and appetite and sleep, but also in terms of what they are talking. So one is like they'll get isolated, they don't want to talk, but they may drop these subtle hints in their talking. Um, some of the clients uh, I have interacted with have actually written some stuff, maybe on their blog sites, maybe put up something on Instagram, which is very anonymous and very cryptic. But it's still it's still important to be aware of, you know, it kind of gives an idea as to what's going on. Sometimes they're giving away their things like, oh, you know, this is my favorite thing and you know, want to give this away to someone or just kind of meeting up with people whom they love as if it's like their one last time. So. Uh, I do feel that there is a huge need to connect more deeply than anything else. As I said, it may be nothing, but it's important to kind of at least be there. We are all in this very uh, big rut of a lot of doing, 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 especially like work from home, everybody's busy. And often in that space, we forget to connect with each other. Uh, we're connected through our mobiles, but we're not connected like really face to face. Uh, and I think uh, that that plays a huge role, especially during these times when children are feeling, teens are feeling very isolated. Uh, they haven't been to school, they haven't seen their friends in person with all the lockdowns and everything else. And everybody is a social animal to some extent, everybody needs that socialization. So it's important to kind of watch out for those things as well, yeah. So, so thank, thanks for bringing up uh, a whole variety, right? So what I'm hearing is that, um, there is a lot of behavioral things that they're doing and the triggers can be anything from um, fights within the family. Um, it can be friendship-based, it can be school-based. So there are behavioral signs that they show. There are also um, um, cognitive things that through what they're saying, you can actually capture like life is not worth living or nobody will miss me even if I disappear or you don't care, you don't love me, all of that. So there is the behavioral, there is the cognitive, which usually comes up verbally. Um, then there is the emotional, uh, where they may cry more or they're more outbursts of either anger, sadness, um, uh, things like that. And of course, the, the idea also that um, many a time that the child might even be showing a lot of symptoms of giving away things. Or in some cases, we also notice that they're really good at hiding, right? Because I've, I've come across, uh, parents talking to me about the guilt of not recognizing the warning signs. They're like, I knew the warning signs, but I didn't see it, right? And then they start, the parents start to beat themselves up for it, that why didn't I say it? It's like, how come, right? And, and this is the part I just wanted to say that, well, there are a lot of warning signs as we have just discussed. Some, some children and some adults know how to hide it too. And, um, Sometimes when they're thinking about it over a period of time, you may not be able to notice it. 
so if 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 there is a if if there is a friend or someone that you have lost and you did not see the warning signs, for example, um, please be compassionate to yourself also because the reality is that, uh, sometimes it's at at length they 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 struggle with it for two three years, and you may not see the signs anymore, right? And um, we also don't want to get to a state where we blame ourselves for everything. So while we want to support, we don't want to go into a blaming stage. Yes, Andrew, please, please share. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on that because uh, something that Shreya mentioned earlier as well, I think is, is relevant at least to, to youth in particular, is that in, uh, in, in a lot of the clients that I see and in, in youth today, the access to things like social media, for example, and the expectations of uh, uh, people wanting um, some kind of uh, love or response from people, but it, it also the addiction to things like games. So unfortunately now, you know, games are made to be incredibly addictive by the people who make them, but they're also now released on mobile phones, which are becoming more widely used by younger people, is that as parents, we might not be able to understand what they're addicted to at any one point in time. Um, and we may see uh, similar behavior such as withdrawal, you know, to, to someone's room, for example, when someone is gaming or using their device for an extended period of time. So we may see uh, things like that. And I think as parents, there there's probably an assumption uh, by some to say, you know, he or she is probably just playing games in his room. He's been like that. He's a teenager. He's grumpy. He's probably just in his room playing games. And I think it's at that point where you know, some of the signs may start to gel with assumptions uh, that we may have is that it's it's so crucial, as I know a few people have also said, to, to make sure that we keep lines of communication open and, um, yeah, make sure that we really listen, as, as Priya said, yeah. Yeah, th thank you for that, because that's always the challenge, right, that um, sometimes when we hear someone cry for help by saying those words that life is not worth living or I'm just going to withdraw or I'm going to teach you a lesson by just staying away from you and all of that. Sometimes we, we might get to a state where we take it as, oh, okay, since he or she is talking about it, it won't happen, All right? Because that, that's a possibility of when uh, some people start to think like that, that you talking about it means it won't happen, right? Or the reverse, because you talk about it, uh, maybe I should shut down the topic so that you won't do it. So, so just coming to that part of it, right? Um, I'm just shifting the conversation from the general part of it to, um, parents and caregivers, right? So what, what should parents and caregivers, it could be even an aunt, uncle, a grandparent, whoever that is, right? What should they say? Or how should they respond when uh, uh, a family member, be it whether it's a child or an adult or an elderly, says that, you know, um, I, I'm tired of living. I'm not sure what to do anymore with my life. Um, it's just hopeless. How should they respond? I think uh, the first thing is really listening to them and, uh, you know, uh, really giving them that comfort that they are there. Because sometimes what children want is just the love, which was probably missing. So uh, once they feel that they are being heard, their feelings are validated, uh, you know, most of their burden comes out. So a lot of times, might be they are fearing that if my uh, 
you know, parents or grandparents, whoever they are with, will come to know what will happen. So that fear also drives them to all of the other things that is happening in their mind. So I think just uh, by uh, really listening to them well, validating their feelings, uh, that's the first step. And then, of course, really looking for what exactly is the reason. Why are they behaving like this? What is the reason? If they feel that uh, they are not able to help after a certain level, they can obviously take professional help from a counselor. They can go and, uh, uh, yeah. So, so I think these two things should be done uh, parallelly along with uh, taking them to for professional help. And also really after that, uh, looking at the child very well. Uh, observing them, how how she is feeling, and uh, making them uh, very comfortable and uh, you know uh, heard. Just adding on to that, I think something that I, I thought of while you were saying that, Shreya, was uh, in a situation which can be incredibly sensitive. I think uh, potentially the reason why that person may have reached out would be, um, you know, as, as as Priya said earlier, was a sense of tremendous hopelessness that this is really their last um, sort of resource is that there may be uh, an understanding that this is a, a sensitive issue as well. So the family member involved may want to check with the individual that, you know, whether they want to share this or not, because in, in a, a tight family situation, particularly where we were living with multi-generations, if that person was to take that, uh, you know, confidence, uh, uh, that, that um, sharing from the individual and, and go and share it with the rest of the family, it could potentially explode into a much bigger issue than um, what was originally intended. So I think maybe asking, uh, that individual as well, whether this is sensitive, if you would like it to keep it between us, it might reaff reaffirm or reinforce that sense of companionship and trust in that individual as well. Very true, Andrew. In fact, I've had um, a few clients who've actually admitted that all I wanted was somebody to just pay attention to me and listen to me. And um, candidly admitting, saying that everything else I tried, didn't work. So I thought that I need to do this. So then at least they will wake up and then they will understand that, yes, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted that listening. And sometimes they don't need problem solving either. Like, I mean, they, they do understand that, you know, the world's not going to change or the boyfriend that betrayed them is not going to come back. And I think the rational, their rational brain tells them that, but they're still looking for that space where they can at least let their heart out. So some, I, I, like I've had sessions sometimes where I've not done anything. I was just there, just listening. And uh, it wasn't like uh, we did some rocket science as, you know, as counselors or anything. there was nothing really. It was just listening. And I've had like sessions back to back and to a point where I've questioned myself like, okay, what exactly am I doing here? Because, you know, at some point as a counselor, you're wondering like, you know, I didn't do anything. I, I just sat there for this. But really, that is what the client wanted because he or she didn't have anybody else who would even hear them out. Uh, so even, you know, when we are seeing something in our family, like there is a tendency, especially amongst parents and I being a parent, I understand the parents point of view. Uh, a child come and, comes and says something like that. We, there is a tendency to brush it off because 
it's like a protective mechanism as a parent like hey don't say such a thing how can you talk about yourself like this like you know it's a very natural reaction that comes up like you shouldn't talk about death like this and you shouldn't be you know there's a big should you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do that but i feel that you know maybe we can take a step back and instead of all the should and all of that reach out and say okay looks like there's something really challenging right now do you want to share with me we can just have a little walk you just want to talk about it and perhaps just talking about it will maybe lower the intensity of whatever that is that is overwhelming them sometimes they are so like you know we've uh, not to go deep into the anatomy of it but you know their brains are growing right so uh, it's also they processing what is happening and sometimes they find themselves quite um, it, it's challenging for them to process it like on one hand they understand what's the right thing to do but on the other hand there's a conflict going on within them and sometimes just listening to them helps them resolve that conflict within themselves by themselves and that i think is self empowering for them as well so i feel just really listening and maybe just sitting there in the room in silence also sometimes just holding their hand in silence also can you know help you tide through that and let them know that you know there are people right there to support them so yeah i think well, one learning for me certainly has been like listening helps and listening reaps a lot of rewards so i think we just need to listen yeah i quite agree with the priya saying listening is very powerful and through the listening actually client keep on talking talking is a way of reflection so they why they're talking they reflect their thoughts as well so it's the same process if the parents if can listen to their children just let them vent out whatever in their mind is helping the kids actually reflect reflect what is really what they want and it's a so-called is a connection in the deeper level emotional level most of the time parents and uh, children are connect in the factual level what do you do how many marks you get uh, have you do your homework so all these are factual and the kids can repeat the parents' words. And they, 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 they took all these as mantra. Once you become mantra, it doesn't have any effect on the children. And children were avoiding the parents. They don't want to connect emotionally. So I think as a parents, when the kids give all these warning signs, we really need to know how to connect with the children emotionally uh, at the deeper level or create some meaningful activities together build up the bondings with the family members together, especially in this COVID period. Everyone is so stressful. Everyone is so isolated. Family bondings with their children and with elderly is extremely important. Thank you guys for, for sharing. Uh, I hear from um, the four of you, right, that the word listening came up very often, right? So um, sometimes, you know, that when we hear that um, someone says that life is meaningless, uh, I don't want to leave and nobody is going to miss me. Um, and all those statements that starts coming out. Um, I guess many people go through the initial stage, right, where our heart rate will increase because it comes from a lot of concern and cares like, oh my God, what's happening with you, right? And uh, I think the idea of that, we don't need very high level skills to do this. Rather, listening is always the first step, right? So I just wanted to also encourage parents, uh, friends, siblings, grandparents, whoever that's going to be listening into this, right, that, um, the thing that the gift that you can give to that person in the moment is really your presence and definitely a listening ear. And sometimes we don't need to say anything. 
right? But being able to just say that, yes, I'm still here. I will walk this journey with you. I may not know what to do, but I will walk that journey with you. And whatever I cannot provide, I will link you up with the right people who can provide. So this hand-in-hand working of family plus um, the counsellor or the therapist, right, is, is, is what I'm hearing from here that is very important, right? Because the first person they usually go to is not you and I, the reality of it. No one knocks on our door and say, hey, I feel like seeing you. No one usually does that, right? It's usually like something has gone really, really um, extreme in the family and then they're like, okay, let me get uh, professional help. But what the family has already started doing is providing that open communication that I'm always with you and the reality is family is 24-7. Um, therapists or counsellors are there once a week, twice a week max. Right? So the encouragement here again is Definitely, I think, um, uh, I think was it Shriya or Shelly also mentioned about besides listening is to validate that yes, it's a difficult moment. That's reality. It is difficult. And it's not for you and I or anyone else to judge how difficult. It's difficult. Doesn't matter how difficult it is, but it is difficult. Right? So I think that idea of um, listening, validating, um, building a sense of hope with them that, you know, that I will be there to, to walk that journey with you. And I think Vespriya also mentioned about seeing, that I am seeing you, I'm hearing you, right? Um, it's not like you're an invisible person. You've said this and you walked off. You are there in my life. And just wondering also that, um, uh, what about for family who, who have lost um, a loved one to suicide, right? Uh, a family who has lost uh, a loved one. How does the family move forward? after the loss. What are some things they can do to move forward? I, I'm using the word move forward, not move on. Um, consciously not saying the word move on because there's really nothing to move on, right? The memory of that loved one, the experiences of that loved one will be um, with each person forever. So it's, it's not about moving on. Um, really, um, I would say is how can we move forward? I think many, many parents when they have lost uh, their loved one they they are constantly in denial and the guilt is so overwhelming and I think the first step they need to take to move forward uh, after the loss of their loved one is to accept uh, the reality of the loss and I know that this can be very difficult because when you go home you know, the bedroom is there, the smell is there, and everything reminds the parents of the child, and the child is not there anymore. But I think the first thing that um, they may want to try is to accept the reality uh, of the lost one. And allow, allow, allow themselves, allow yourself to uh, experience the pain uh, or grief. I mean, it's not just about... Uh, children or family that uh, left the world because uh, out of suicide. Even like natural death, it's really difficult for people to accept the reality of the loss. And what more for uh, those have lost uh, to suicide? And experience the pain of grief, you know, uh, rather than um, trying to numb it, trying to forget it, trying to do something else. Because when one bottle up their emotions they're rejecting their feelings it, it just make it really difficult for them to move forward 
So to go to more faith and through the loss is to accept the loss. I mean, I get so emotional talking about, about this because um, I've encountered a friend, not a client, who has lost someone, uh, uh, who someone she loved uh, from suicide. So it's really hard for them to uh, accept it because they are constantly asking themselves, uh, what did they not do or what did they do wrong? And it's like a vicious cycle because these are all the unanswered questions that they have in their minds. And um, to adjust to the environment uh, in which their loved one is missing, it's really hard. So sometimes people just lock the door and never open it for years. Some people, they just want to move or some people, they just want to clean things out. So when you do these things, um, you're actually not allowing yourself to grieve, you're not allowing yourself uh, to accept the loss. So again, I'm so sorry, <laughs> I'm getting emotional, but yes. You know, this is, this, this is what we want to talk about. We, we remember our topic is really no filter. Whatever you're experiencing, <laughs> just, just to bring it out also, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, honey. Um, anyone else want to share? I think it's, um, uh, I think what Hani summed it up uh, really very well. Uh, and uh, Hani, you probably got all of us also emotional in that process. But, you know, acceptance sometimes I find is, um, it's easier said than done. And I think um, for any family member, for any loved one, I mean, I was just thinking about, you know, when, uh, when the news of Robin Williams came in, um, I don't know if you remember, it's not like any of us are personally, you know, connected to him or you've spent even a minute with him. But I remember I was shaken because you don't you don't expect somebody who's made so many people laugh uh, suddenly, like, you know, take such a step. So when it is so close to home or so close in your social environment, when you kind of didn't expect it, I think there is a burden of those unanswered questions that Hernie was talking about, right? And it does it does play through your mind again and again. Um, and I feel uh, during those times, uh, uh, you know, uh, as, as grief always takes its time, right? I mean, closure doesn't happen overnight. Uh, uh, grief, even in just regular circumstances, also takes time. With this, there is this additional burden of all, what if, what if I had done this, what if I had seen this, what if I had heard this, all of that. I think it's really very important also to be very compassionate towards your own self and compassionate towards the people who are grieving at that time. And people will have different reactions at different times. So if there are siblings of, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the child who has committed suicide, they may go through their mood swings. You may go through your mood swings. There may be situations that may trigger you. You may break down. And I think all of that will happen. But I think it's very important to kind of be easy on yourself. It, it, it is uh, it, it, it is a very overwhelming situation. It's not like a very normal circumstance. And you need to, uh, you know, uh, as much as we train ourselves to, you know, become accepting of the fact and all, we'll go through our times of denial. We'll go through our times of fighting with what the reality is, you know. But I think we just need to be a little bit more kinder to ourselves and understand that not everything is under our control, not every sign you would have picked on. So something that you, you know, uh, hinted at earlier, Sunita, that um, 
it's not humanly possible to keep a tab on you know every single thing that you could have picked up on and uh, i think at that point in time just to remember that you know you are human you're doing your best and you just have to be kind to kinder to yourself you have to give yourself time and it takes time to get over and move forward also i don't know if you ever get over this but even moving forward sometimes can take time Thank, thank you, uh, uh, Honey and Priya, for sharing that. Right, um, I, the thing that came out very strongly for me again and again was the time factor that uh, that that you spoke about. That it will take time, and um, I just wanted to say, don't rush. Um, it, personally, I get very frustrated when when people tell my clients right that it's already been a year, it's already been two years. Why is anyone counting, right? So each of us grieve very differently. You can grieve for 10 years and that's okay if that is your journey, right? There is really no train to catch, let me put it that way, right? So I think this part is really important that we each of us deal with grief very differently. Um, and grief when it's sudden loss um, is very different from when someone passes through after long years of being bedridden and all, it's very, very different. And there's really no basis of comparison. So that idea of time, um, accepting that I may need a long time, being compassionate to yourself, super important. And um, you know that part, uh, I think Priya, you mentioned about people ask the question of what if, what if. Um, it's, it's such a dangerous question in the mind, right? What if I did this? What if I was there? What if? And many of my clients who, for example, when they were at home and it happened, they're like, what if I had just opened the door and went in? What if I had spoken to him or her longer? What if I had just sent that message? So this what if uh, leads to a lot of guilt for whoever that remains, whether it's a family member or a friend. And I just wanted to, to reassure um, the, uh, the people who are around, the family members and uh, friends who are around that. Um, when these questions of what if comes up, please be compassionate to yourself. Even a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, miss the signals, right? So um, what I'm trying to say here is that what if it's not helpful? Whenever it comes up, let it be there, but need not entertain it too much because the what if can be a few thousands, right? And when people are very determined, sometimes it can be difficult, right? right to, to, to stop them. At the same time, we know that if they have someone to sit down with and talk to for a while, usually that, that strong, feeling of wanting to commit suicide that will also pass. So the best thing we can do is just to sit there with that person, even if we have, we have nothing to say. And when we reject these strong emotions, what happens is your body stores it, right? So when our body stores it, we suffer in the long run. So sometimes I would say suffer in that, that shorter run of a couple of years, going through these strong emotions, when the long run, it helps us. right? And it just, just as I was saying that, um, not that it comes to us, as uh, people in the helping field, right? When we work with clients who are suicidal and uh, we may even have lost clients to suicide, um, my understanding is, and, and, and I know I do get affected even when my clients talk about uh, suicide. And, um, and we have talked about this before where some of us end up messaging more often to our client just to check in if they're okay. Um, sometimes we, we don't sleep too well because you're still thinking about them that, you know, like, have I done enough? for example, right? So just wondering that, how did, how did you guys cope 
um, being in the he- mental health uh, field, right? how do you cope when your clients talk about suicide? I have to say it's tough. I'm going to be very honest. It is tough. Um, um, there was a time when I had multiple such clients and um, I came to appreciate mindfulness far, far more during uh, that time uh, because it is, uh, it is a huge grounding technique for me. Uh, and at times you have to very consciously, uh, literally like, you know, s- separate yourself from that, and which is also our profession, uh, you know, as much as uh, we, we empathize with our clients and uh, we want to be authentic, uh, we're aware of transference, counter-transference, but at some level we are also human. It's difficult to see somebody in so much pain. Um, and to be objective during that time, uh, I have to make sure that I show up uh, uh, in a space where I am objective and I'm not emotional. So, you know, it's, uh, and when I say not emotional, meaning not that I don't, uh, I can't empathize with the person, but I can't get, I can't be dysfunctional in my empathy, let me put it this way. So I, so I have to, I have to make that very clear distinction. And as Sunita said that, yes, there have been times when I've had a sleepless night. There have also been times when I have gone outside of office hours and I have continued texting uh, my clients just to make sure that, you know, uh, there is someone. Sometimes clients are alone, especially during COVID. Not everybody had family around them, right? And the only close person that they know at that point is you. So uh, they feel more comfortable talking to you versus calling up SOS and uh, I, I just feel like that is something that comes uh, comes with the territory, uh, comes as a human being, and you need to be there uh, as much as you can possibly can. Uh, so it is tough. Uh, one thing that I do always tell my clients, and I do it for myself, is get moving. I, uh, I, I, I think just getting outdoors, uh, exercising, whether it is just for half an hour, whether it is whatever, uh, Singapore has lots of parks, go explore that. But I think that is another place uh, which is a good coping mechanism, certainly. It's a very healthy coping mechanism. And I think it's also healthy physically as well, especially in the times where we are just all sitting at our laptops. Uh, but yeah, these two things have uh, have been really my uh, coping mechanism, so to speak. Um, and uh, yes, I do connect with my clients, sometimes with clients, uh, caregivers or family members, uh, just to kind of tide over that time, because I think that is essentially the need of the hour. Uh, as I said, sometimes it is nothing else. I'm not, we're not problem solving. We're not fixing their external worlds in any form. Uh, we're just we're just there, um, and I think that is what we need to uh, provide to them. Uh, but it is a challenging uh, it is a challenging turf. Uh, I will not deny it. I'm being very very honest. Yes. For me, it's the same. It it weighs heavily on me because I, especially working with the uh, the younger younger group, and. Um, I often, I often have to deal with this consistent worry, consistent um, fear. It makes me feel uneasy when my client is out of sight. It comes to the extent that I, when the session is over and I know that they're going to, they're, they're big enough uh, to call the grab themselves. And even the slightest thing like that, it makes me feel so uh, uneasy. 
to just leave them uh, on on their own. And sometimes I can't um, help but text them uh, multiple times a week. But on top of that, um, one challenge that I have experienced also is because uh, is the professional side, because I need to be I need to be um, aware and I need to consistently remind myself that there are some things that need to be reported, especially when I'm dealing uh, with an underage client. And this is where uh, the heaviness comes in because, you know, when it comes to the disclosure and I'm, I'm, I'm often worried that it will rupture my, the counselor-client relationship. Uh, and then it's going to increase my client's uh, risk of suicide. So these are the two things that I, I always go through when I'm dealing, uh, when I'm uh, with a younger client. Not only I can't really sleep and I can feel easy when they are out of my sight, uh, I'm also worried that there are some things or there's moment that I have to uh, approach someone else uh, to talk about uh, the danger, the risk of this person uh, actually doing it. And again, the, uh, the relationship between the counselor and uh, client, uh, it, it means a lot to me especially when you have invested a lot of time, especially when you've seen this person uh, open up. So that's, that's how uh, the challenges that I, uh, that I go through. And how do I cope with it is mentorship, uh, supervision. I, I make sure that I have um, someone to talk to, like Dr. Sunita here, um, you know, because we counselors, we are also human. Like for me, I do feel... Uh, I feel and I, again, I worry, we're not, uh, we're not made of steel, so we do feel. So for me, talking, of course, on top of, uh, you know, doing meditation and mindfulness, that's my personal side. I, I, I cope through talking to people within uh, uh, the, the profession, especially someone uh, who is your mentor, and it helps tremendously. Uh, because these things, they are heavy. And one, for me, I can't possibly bottle it up all the time because then it's going to affect uh, my other clients. So that's, that's me. <laughs> thank, thank you, honey. I'm sure you were going to share. Yeah. Yeah, I think a few of the points uh, while Hani was talking, I, I too had those on my mind. So I think it's a very fine balance. Definitely, we feel a lot uh, whenever our clients are going through this and checking on my clients and we do get afterthoughts after that. But I think what I really consciously do is to really observe myself and uh, be ready uh, for the case whenever I have to meet the client. So I I do consciously practice self-care a lot and uh, so that my mind is clear and calm. And uh, so I have my methods of self-care, what I do, uh, meditation, outdoor walking. And definitely if it gets a lot, then I will uh, talk about it to my supervisor. And uh, through supervision, I will discuss the case and uh, present whatever difficulties and challenges also that uh, if it's uh, happening. 
so yeah i think uh, those two things have to be uh, like you know a very fine balance has to be maintained thank you shreya so i i sorry shali please stay uh, yes okay uh, i think it's always challenging for counselor try to save a life but in the end we can't do it because the people we still lost it and it's tremendous emotional uh attack to us so sometimes i use the example like doctor right medical doctor they do whatever they can they actually give the most comfort to the patients they do the basic they, uh, the best of their ability to the surgeries but still during the process you're losing the person so for me use this kind of the uh, comfort if it if one day I do all the best I can. I still lose my client in whatever way. And it happens to many counselors and a very well-known counselor I know in Singapore. They do their best, but in the end, they still lose your client. Eventually, they have to also, like Priya and uh, Helene and Shurya said, they need to go for the mentors. They go for the supervision to calm the, the kind of feeling of guilt. Yeah, no matter how how good we are, sometimes the people's mind, the fix is very hard to change, very hard. But as long as we do our best ability, we help our client, we build a therapeutic relation, we care for them, like Honey uh, says, text almost a few times a day, a week, we do our part. And we also have, I think we need to know how to cope also, in the event it happens, how to cope our own emotions. That is very important. Yeah. Thank you, Shelley. Um, so the, the, what I'm hearing from every one of you is definitely you're impacted. Um, I think this is important for people um, who are hearing us also to know that, that exactly as what was said earlier, we are not steel, we are not iron or something. All of us experience the emotions. Um, I know when my clients siblings and all that when they commit suicide or people that I know um, even though they are distant uh, I still experience the wave of emotions even though they were not sitting in front of me as my client I still experience those wave of emotions and when some of people that I supervise when they lose a client um, you can see how how badly they, the counsellor uh, goes through for weeks and weeks sometimes months and sometimes they cannot handle the next client anymore because it becomes so uh, deep for us because losing any life is difficult, right? And when you are walking the journey with the person, you start to judge yourself. Same question, what if, right? So while our clients and parents and whoever go through the what if, so do we. The, the only difference perhaps is that um, maybe we have 5% more in our toolbox that helps us a little bit. Right, so I, I think that that helps a little bit to to challenge our own thinking, to get um supervision, and many of us in this team, I think particularly all of us in this team practice uh, mindfulness and meditation, and many of us here are trained in that also. Um, I think the other thing that's very important, especially for fellow counselors who might be listening, in, is um managing our boundaries. Doesn't mean detach, but the idea of that, yes, this has happened. Um, I do need to also manage my emotions by getting supervision, going into that outdoor. Um, think simple things like sunlight helps us a lot. 
um, you know, it, sometimes the things are so simple, but we look for the most complicated solution, right? But just being in the outdoor, going into the sun, going into nature, all of these things are so helpful. And if you have to sit there and cry, then that's all you do. It's okay. So I, I also wanted us to just be very real that counselors too struggle. We do have our own challenges in, in life. We, we do go through it. We do struggle when we lose our clients. That's the reality of it. Um, and we too turn to others for help. So I just wanted to be very open that we too go for help. Um, we're not only saying for our clients and anyone out there to go for help, but we too go for it, right? So it's really, um, you're not preaching otherwise. Let's put it that way, right? You're really not preaching otherwise. We get help, whether it's peers like ourselves here or through our supervisors, but we too get help. Now, um, I, I do know that we, we, we have been together for about an hour or so. Um, I was just going to invite each one of you um, to share a, a parting word or something that you would like our uh, viewers or listeners to, to take back from this talk. I don't mind sharing something first. And, and I think it would be you know, a fairly simple message, but something that, that came up a, a couple of uh, conversations ago was particularly for people who are suffering from bereavement, uh, that you're also not alone. I think that it is a very personal journey, of course, losing someone. It's, it's one of the most personal things that you could go through. But at the same time, others have probably suffered. And I think that universality uh, that you can, you can share in with others, whether it be support groups or resources, it, it wouldn't even need to just be in Singapore. I think there are a number of resources globally now where you can speak to people, share with them, and also understand that the journey that they've been through in healing from that process can be tremendously, tremendously helpful as well. So don't feel like you're alone. Um, um, be open to, to reaching out and speaking to others about it as well. Um, yeah, so adding on to what Andrew said, don't feel alone. And just to say that reaching out for help is not a weakness. As Sunita just said that all of us here, in spite of the fact that you know we're trained uh, in this field, we also reach out for help. So there is absolutely nothing, nothing to feel um, bad or weak or sad about if one reaches out for help. Um, at some level, that is what we are for, to be there for each other, right? In, irrespective of our professional capacities. So this is simply to say that you may feel that you are alone, you may feel that nobody is listening, but there is always one door that is open and you can reach out for help and you should reach out for help. I think that is uh, something that I would request each and every listener to kind of understand that we all need help at some point or the other and we should seek that help. Yeah, I think one uh, message which I would like to give to all the listeners would be uh, to be compassionate because uh, that's something which uh, is very, very powerful. And uh, just, uh, you know, uh, small things, sometimes we are hard on ourselves and that just keeps on mounting. So just practicing self-compassion and it's, it's really, uh, you know, I've personally, whenever I've done it, I've felt tremendous changes. So I think, uh, and as Sunita said, that sometimes things 
needn't be very complicated. Uh, very, very simple things are in front of us, but we try to go and look for some complicated things. So just practicing mindfulness, meditation, as we know the benefits and going outdoors, all these things are very easy and simple to do. And uh, just to summarize what we all have said about uh, listening and uh, really uh, being there, I think, yeah. And uh, to add to that, again, like it is really important to know that you are not alone. Uh, there's always someone out there uh, for you. And don't lose hope because, uh, again, there's always someone there to listen to you and practice self care. And again, you know, take every moment as it is and if it gets overwhelmed you can you can reach out to somebody um, for these sessions i want to share one chinese words uh, always people say which means before the dawn the darkness is the dark is the most dark yeah, so this is the most difficult time. As long as you pass through that darkness period, the dawn will come and the, the light, the sunshine will come into your life. Just pass through that period, you will gain the, the most bright day in the life. Okay. Thank you. And um, I, I will share what, what's going through my mind also is... Uh, I think this idea of um, you are important. I, I'm not sure how else to say this, but the idea is that each one of us in this room and each one of the people who are listening in, you are important. It may not feel like in that moment, especially when you are feeling low or upset, but the reality is you are important. And to every person who has ever known you, it is meaningful. And I have spoken to groups of people who uh, have lost someone whom is only an acquaintance so they say it's only an acquaintance, but yet I can't sleep anymore since this person has committed suicide. So to, to the person who is going through that difficult moment, it looks like it doesn't matter. No one will miss me and all that. But the reality is you are important. Every person who has touched your life in some manner will miss you. Um, we are definitely here for you. And I, I, I can confidently say that anyone in the helping profession is definitely there for you. Um, it's really like really a call away, a text away, a, a message away. Um, there are just so many avenues right now, which, which I'm really grateful for. And the other thing is um, for people who are supporting um, or who are around the person who is, who is going through that low moment in life, all you and I need to do is just listen and listen and listen and listen. Even if you don't know what to say. Right. And I think everyone here has mentioned that many times. Just listen, right? And to the person going through that moment, please be kind to yourself, right? There, there are many ways to be kind, but all I want to say is please be kind to yourself. Um, thoughts will come in, right? Like those dark moments will come in. But the idea is that these dark moments will pass, right? Look forward to the next day or the next moment. And if need be, call a friend, call a family member, call SOS line. Uh, there are many people willing to listen. All right, but the idea of not giving up, just make that phone call. I, I think that's the first step towards anything that we want to do. 
So um, thank you, guys. So thank you, um, Andrew, Priya, Shelly, Honey, and uh, Ashria for joining in here and um, going through this entire conversation, right? And also willing to really be, um, in that sense, unfiltered, right? Uh, as we are speaking here today. Um, as, as we end later, what I will be doing is, uh, at the end of the video, I will be sharing some helplines. And many of these, uh, some are helplines, some are um, chat box and things like that, where, you know, depending on the mode that you prefer. And of course, you could call anyone in this team also, right? But the intention really, really is that there is help. That's the key thing I want to say, there is help. Please just reach out. And if anything, take it as baby step. You take one step, someone will take one step with you, right? So that's the, the, the most important thing. Just take that first step. I'm very confident somebody will take that step with you, right? So thank you for, for listening in, uh, to us and thanks team for um, having this conversation so openly. So we are going to be pausing here for today.